3. G. But the old world state under religion, from Spain to Russia men were living under a holy Roman Empire of an Italian, or Teutonic, or Byzantine, or independent type. England and Russia were not parts of the Germanic revival of Charlemagne, but they had just the same two elements dominant in their life, the classical tradition and the Christian church. And so throughout this time, the expansion of this society by whatever name we may call it, discovery, exploration, geographical knowledge has a continuous history, but before the rise of Islam, in the 7th century, throws Christendom into its proper medieval life, before the new religion begins the really new age, at the end of which lived Henry himself, we are too far from our subject to feel, for instance in the 4th and 5th century pilgrims and in Cosmos Indicopolis, anything but a remote preparation for Henry's work, it is only with the 7th century, and with the time of our own Bede and Wilfred, that the necessary introduction to our subject really begins, yet as an illustration of the general idea, that discovery is an early and natural outlet of any vigorous society and is in proportion to the universal activity of the state, it is not without interest to note that Christian pilgrimage begins with Constantine, this, the first department of exploring energy, that once evidences the new settlement of religion and politics, Helena, the emperor's mother, helped, by her visit to Palestine, her church at Bethlehem, and her discoveries of relics in Jerusalem, to make a ruling fashion out of the custom of a few devotees, and eight years after the Council of Nicaea, in 333, appeared the first Christian geography, as a guidebook or itinerary, from Bordeaux to the holy places of Syria, modeled upon the imperial survey of the Antonines, the route followed in this runs by North Italy, Aquileia, Sirmium, Constantinople, and Asia Minor, and upon the same course thousands of nameless pilgrims journeyed in the next 300 years, besides some eight or nine who have left an account mainly religious in form, but containing in substance the widest view of the globe than possible among Westerns. Most of the pilgrims, like Jerome's friend Paula, Bishop Eucheris, and Melandia, tread the same path and stop at the same points, but three or four of them distinctly add some fresh knowledge to the ordinary results. St. Sylvia of Aquitaine C385, not only travels through Syria, she visits Lower Egypt and Stony or Sinaitic Arabia, and even Edessa in northern Mesopotamia, on the very borders of hostile and heathen Persia, to see the monks, she wanders through Osreen, comes to Haran, near which was, the home of Abraham and the farm of Laban and the well of Rachel, to the environs of Nisibis and Ur of the Chaldees, lost to the Roman Empire since Julian's defeat, Thence by Pognarum, back to Antioch. When crossing the Euphrates the pilgrims saw the river rush down in a torrent like their own, but greater, and on the way home by the great military road, then and traveled by Saracens, between Tarsus and the Bosphorus, Sylvia makes a passing note on the strength and brigand habits of the Isaurian mountaineers, who in the end save Christendom from the very Arabs with whom our pilgrim couples them. Again, Cosmos Indicopolis, in the time of Justinian is at the end, as Sylvia is at the beginning, of a definite period, the period of the Christian Empire of Rome, while still, Caesarian, and not merely Byzantine, patrician, and not papal, consular, and not Carolingian, and contemporary with Cosmos are two of the chief among the earlier or primitive pilgrims, Theodosius and Antoninus the Martyr, the first named indulges in a few excursions in fancy beyond his known ground of Palestine, going as far east as Susa and Babylon where no one can live for the serpents and hippocentaurs, and south to the Red Sea and its two arms, 
of which the eastern is called the Persian Gulf, and the western or Arabian runs up to the thirteen cities of Arabia destroyed by Joshua, but, for the rest, his knowledge is not extensive or peculiar, and Ninus of Placentia, on the other hand, is very interesting, a sort of older Mandeville, who mixes truth and its opposite in fairly even proportions and with a sort of resolute partiality to favorite legends. He tells us how Tripolis has been ruined by the later earthquake July 9th, 551, how silk and various woven stuffs are sold at Tyre, how the pilgrims scratched their names on the relics shown in Cana of Galilee, and here I sinner that I am, did inscribe the names of my parents, how Bethshan, the metropolis of Galilee, is placed on a hill, though really in the plain, how the Samaritans hate Christians and will hardly speak to them, and beware of spitting in their country for they will never forgive it, how, the dew comes down upon Hermon the little, as David says, the dew of Hermon that fell upon the hill of Zion, how nothing can live or even float in the Dead Sea, but is instantly swallowed up, as exact in a truth as was ever told by traveler, how the Jordan opens away for pilgrims, and stands up in a heap every year at the Epiphany during the baptism of catechumens, as David told, the sea saw that and fled, Jordan was driven back, how at Jericho there is a holy field, sown by the Lord with his own hand. A report had been spread that the salt pillar of Lot's wife had been, lessened by licking, it was false, said Antoninus. The statue was just the same as it had always been. In Jerusalem the pilgrims first went up the Tower of David, where he sang the Psalter, and into the Basilica of Sion, where among other marvels they saw the cornerstone that the builders rejected, which gave out a sound like the murmuring of a crowd. We come back again to fact with rather a start when told in the next section of the hospitals for 3,000 sick folk near the Church of St. Mary, close to Sion, then with the footprints and relics of Christ, and the miraculous flight of the column of scourging, carried away by a cloud to Caesarea, we are taken through a fresh set of impressions, the same wild notions of place and time and nature follow the martyr through Galilee to Gilboa, where David slew Goliath and Saul died, where no dew or rain ever falls and where devils appear nightly, whirled about like fleeces of wool or the waves of the sea, to Nazareth, where was the beam of Christ the carpenter, to Alua, where fifteen consecrated virgins had tamed a lion and trained it to live with them in a cell to Egypt, where the pyramids become for him the twelve barns of Joseph, for the legend had not yet insisted that the actual number should be made to fit the text of the seven years of plenty, but with all this Antoninus now and then gives us glimpses of a larger world, in Jerusalem he meets Ethiopians, with nostril slit and rings about their fingers and their feet. They were so marked, they told him, by the Emperor Trajan, for a sign. In the Sinai Desert he tells us of, Saracen, beggars and idolars. In the Red Sea ports he sees, ships from India, laden with aromatics. He travels up the Nile to the cataracts and describes the Nilometer at Aswan. And the crocodiles in the river, Alexandria he finds, splendid but frivolous a lover of pilgrims but swarming with heresies, but far more wonderful than the practical jumble of Antoninus Martyr is the systematic nonsense of Cosmos, who invented or worked out a theory and scheme of the world, a Christian topography, which required nothing more than a complete disuse of human reason, his assurance was equal to his science, it may have been his voyage to India, or his monastic profession, or his study of scripture, or something unknown that made him take up the part of a Christian Aristotle, in any case he felt himself called into the field to support the cause of St. Augustine against infidelity, and to refute the anile fable of the Antipodes. Cosmos referred men back to a revelation on such matters, and his system was demonstrated from scripture. 
concerning which the Christian is not allowed to doubt. Man by himself could not understand the world, but in the Bible it was all clear enough, and from the Bible this much was beyond dispute. The universe is a flat parallelogram, and its length is exactly double of its breadth. In the center of the universe is our world surrounded by the ocean, and by an outer world or ring where men live before the flood. Noah and his ark came over sea from this to the present earth. To the north of our world is a great hill, like the later Muslim and older Hindu cupola of the earth, which perhaps was Cosmos' own original. Round this the sun and moon revolve, making day and night as they appear or disappear behind it. The sky consists of four walls meeting in the dome of heaven over the floor on which we live, and the sky is glued to the edges of the outer world, the world of the patriarchs. But this heaven is also cut into by the firmament, lying between our atmosphere and that new heaven and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, and the floor of this upper world is covered by the waters that be above the firmament, above this is paradise, and below the firmament live the angels, as ministers and flaming fires and servants of God to men. The proofs of this are simple, mainly resting on some five texts from the Old Testament and two passages of St. Paul. First the book of Genesis declared itself to be the book of the generation of the heaven and the earth, that island of everything in the heavens, and the earth. But the old wives' fable of the Antipodes would make the heaven surround and contain the earth, and God's word would have to be changed. These are the generations of the sky. For the same truth the twofold and independent being of heaven and earth cosmos quotes the additional testimony of Abraham, David, Hosea, Isaiah, Zechariah, and Melchizedek, who clenched the case against the Antipodes. For how indeed could even rain be said to fall or to descend, as in the Psalms and the Gospels, in those regions where it could only be said to come up, again, the world cannot be a globe, or sphere, or be suspended in mid-air, or in any sort of motion. For what say the scriptures? Earth is fixed on its foundations, thou hast laid the foundations of the earth and it abideth, thou hast made the round world so sure, that it cannot be moved, thou hast made all men to dwell upon the face of the whole earth, not upon every face, or upon any more than one face, upon the face, not the back or the side, but the broad flat face we know. Who then would these passages before him, ought even to speak of antipodes, so much against false doctrine? To establish the truth is simpler still, for the same St. Paul, who disposes of science falsely so called, does not he speak, like David, like St. Peter and St. John, of our world as a tabernacle? If our earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, which points to the natural conclusion of enlightened faith, that Moses' tabernacle was an exact copy of the universe. See thou make all things according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. So the four walls, the covered roof, the floor, the proportions of the tent of the wilderness, showed us in small compass all that was in nature. If any further guidance were needed, it was ready to hand in the prophet Isaiah and the patriarch Job, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Also can any understand the spreadings of the clouds or the noise of his tabernacle? The whole reasoning is like the theological arguments on the effects of man's fall upon the stars and the vegetable world or the atmospheric changes due to angels, but though Cosmos states his system with the claims of an article of faith, there were not wanting men, and even saints, who stood out on the side of reason and geography in the most traditional of times, Isidore of Seville, and Virgil, the Irish missionary of the 8th century, both maintained the old belief of Basil and Ambrose, that the question of the Antipodes was not closed by the church, 
and that error in this point was venial and not moral. For the positive tabernacle system of the man who sailed to India, there was never much support, his work was soon forgotten. Though it has been called by some paradox makers, the great authority of the Middle Ages, in the face of the known facts, that this was the real position of Ptolemy and Strabo, that no one can speak of the Middle Ages in this unqualified way any more than of the modern or ancient worlds, and that cosmos is almost unnoticed in the great age of medieval science, from the 12th century, and whatever we may think of cosmos and his Christian system of the whole world, evolved out of Holy Scripture. He is of interest to us as the last of the old Christian geographers, closing one age which, however senile, had once been in the truest sense civilized, and preparing us to enter one that in comparison is literally dark, from the age of Justinian, and from the rise of Islam in the early years of the 7th century, the geographical knowledge of Christendom is on a par with its practical contraction and apparent decline, there are travelers, but for the next 500 years there are no more theorists cosmographers, or map-makers of the universe or habitable globe, from the time that Islam, after a century of world conquest, began to form itself into an organized state, or federation of states, in the later 8th and earlier 9th centuries AD thus making itself until the 13th century the principal heir of the older Eastern culture, Christendom was content to take its geography, its ideas of the world in general, from the Arabs, who in their turn depended upon the pre-Christian Greeks. The relation of Ptolemy and Strabo to modern knowledge is best seen through the work of the Arabic geographers, but the Saracens did much to destroy before they began to build up once more, as the northern barbarians of the 5th century interrupted the hope of a Christian revival of pagan literature and science, so the Moslems of the 7th and 8th cut short the Catholic and Roman revival of Justinian and Heraclius, in which the new faith and the old state had found a working agreement, between Cosmos and the Viking Age. Christian. Roman, Western, exploration falls within very narrow limits, the few pilgrims whose recollections represent to us the whole literature of travel in the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries, add nothing fresh even of practical discovery, theory and theoretical work has ceased altogether, and the first stirrings of the new life in the commerce and voyages of Amalfi, and in the sudden and splendid outburst of Norse life in its age of piracy, are not yet are not really before the world until the time of Alfred of England, of Charles the Bald, of Pope Nicholas I, the Great, yet such as it island this pilgrim stage of European development stands for something, religion, as it is the first agent in forming our modern nations, is the first impulse towards their expansion, and to us there is a special interest, for the best known of Western travelers in this darkest of the Christian ages 600-870 A.D. Arkulf and Willigold are both connected with England and the beginnings of English science in the age of Bede. Arkoff, a Frank or Gallican bishop, who about 690 visited, first of Latin writers since the Mohammedan conquest, Jerusalem, the Jordan Valley, Nazareth, and the other holy places of Syria, was driven by storms on his return to the great Irish monastery of Iona. There he described his wonders to the abbot Adamnan, who then sat in the seat of the Irish apostles Patrick and Columba and by Adamnan this narrative was presented and dedicated to Aldfrith the Wise, last of the great Northumbrian kings, in his court at York C.A.D. 701. Not only does the original remain to us, but we have also two summaries of it, one longer, another shorter, made by Beda, the Venerable Bede, as a full manual for Englishmen, concerning the holy sites. We are again reminded by this how constantly fresh life is growing up under an appearance of death. 
the conversion of England, which Gregory the Great, Theodore, and the Irish monks had carried through in the seventh, that darkest of Christian centuries, was now bearing its fruit in the work of Bede, who was really the sign of a far more permanent intellectual movement than his own, and in that of Boniface, Wilbroard, and Willigald, who began to win for Christendom in Germany more than a counterpoise for her losses in the south and east, from Armenia to Spain. Arkulf is full of the mystical and scientific spirit of the time. He notes in Jerusalem, a lofty column, which at midday casts no shadow, thus proving itself to be the center of the earth for as David says, God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. At the roots of Lebanon, he comes to the place where the Jordan has its rise from two fountains Joram Dan, whose waters unite in the single river Jordan, in the dead sea a lighted lamp would float safely and no man could sink if he tried, the bitumen of this place was almost indissoluble, the only fruit hereabout were the apples of Sodom, which crumbled to dust in the mouth, the three churches on the top of Tabor were, according to the three tabernacles described by Peter, from Damascus Arkov made for the port of Tyre, and so came by Jaffa to Egypt, Alexandria he found so great that he was one entire day in nearly passing through, its port he thought, difficult of access and something like the human body in shape, with a narrow mouth and neck, then stretching out far and wide, the great pharaoh's tower was still lit up every night with torches, here was the emporium of the whole world, countless merchants from all parts, the country rainless and very fertile, the Nile was navigable to the town of elephants, beyond this, at the cataracts, the river, runs in a wild ruin down a cliff, its embankments, its canals, and even its crocodiles, not so large as ravenous, are all described, and Arkov returning home by Constantinople, concludes with an account of the capital of Christendom, beyond doubt the metropolis of the Roman Empire, and by far the greatest city therein, lastly, as the pilgrim sails by Sicily he sees the Isle of Vulcan vomiting smoke by day and flame by night, with a noise like thunder, which is always fiercer on Fridays and Saturdays, Willigald, a nephew of St. Boniface and related through his mother to King Inna of Wessex, started for the east about 721, passed ten years in travel, and on his return followed his countrymen to mission work and to death among the heathen of Upper Germany, he went out by Southampton and Rouen, by Luca and the Alps, to Naples and Catania, where is Mount Etna, and when this volcano casts itself out they take street Agatha's Vale and hold it towards the fire, which ceases at once, thence by Samos and Cyprus to Antaridas and Emesda, in the region of the Saracens, where the whole party, who had escaped the Moslem brigands of southern Gaul, were thrown into prison on suspicion of being spies. A Spaniard made intercession for them and got their release, but Willibald went up country one hundred miles, and cleared himself of all suspicion before the Caliph at Damascus. We have come from the west, where the sun has his setting, and we know of no land beyond nothing but water. This was too far for spies, he pleaded, and the Caliph agreed and gave him a pass for all the sites of Palestine, with which he traversed the length and breadth of the Holy Land four times, finding the same trouble in leaving as he had found in entering, like Arkov, he saw the fountains of Jordan, the glorious church of Helena at Bethlehem, the tombs of the patriarchs at Hebron, the wonders of Jerusalem, especially was he moved at the sight of the columns in the church of the Ascension on Olivet. For that man who can creep between those columns and the wall is freed from all his sins. Tyre and Sidon he passed again and again, on the coast of the Adriatic Sea as he calls the Levant. Six miles from one another, at last he got away to Constantinople. 
with some safely smuggled trophies of pilgrimage, and some, balsam in a calabash, covered with petroleum, but the customs officers would have killed all of them if the fraud had been found out so Willibald believed, after two years of close intercourse with the Greek Christians of New Rome, living in a, cell hollowed out of the side of a church, possibly St. Sophia, the first of English-born travelers returned to Old Rome, as Arkoff had done, I see, noticing, like him, Theodoric's hell, in the Lipares, he could not get up the mountain, though curious to see, what sort of a hell it was, where the Gothic, tyrant, was damned for the murder of Bibis and Simus, and for his own impenitent Arianism, but though he could not be seen or heard, all the pilgrims remarked how the, hummus that writer's use was thrown up by the flame from the hell, and fell into the sea, and so was cast upon the shore and gathered up, such was the philosophy of Catholicism about the countries of the known world in the 8th century, for Willibald's account was published with the imprimatur of Gregory III, and, with Arkhoff's, took rank as a satisfactory comment on the old Bordeaux itinerary of 400 years ago. Again, the impression given by our two chief guidebooks, Arkhoff and Willibald, is confirmed by the monk Fidelis, who traveled in Egypt about 750, and by Bernard the Wise of Montstreet Mitchell who went over all the pilgrim ground a century later 867. Fidelis, sailing up the Nile, was astonished at the sight of the seven barns of Joseph, the pyramids looking like mountains, but hall of stone, square at the base, rounded in the upper part and twisted at the summit like a spire. On measuring a side of one of them, it was found to be 400 feet. From the Nile Fidelis sailed by the freshwater canal of Neko, Hadrian, and Amru not finally blocked up till 767, direct to the Red Sea, near where Moses crossed with the Israelites. The pilgrim wanted to go and look for Pharaoh's chariot wheels, but the sailors were obstinate, and took him round the peninsula of Sinai, down one arm of the sea and up another, to a Zyunga brand Edom. Bernard, the French monk, of Montstreet Mitchell, took the straight route overland by Rhone to Bari, then a Saracen city whose emir forwarded the pilgrims in a fleet of transports carrying some 9,000 Christian slaves to Alexandria. Here, like Willigold, Bernard found himself, suspect, thrown into prison till Bakshish had been paid, then only allowed to move stage by stage as fees were prompt and sufficient, for a traveler must pay, as an infidel, not only the ordinary tribute of the subject Christians of Egypt, but the money of the road, as well. Islam has always made of strangers a fair mark for extortion. Safe at last in Jerusalem, the party Bernard himself and two friends, one a Spaniard, the other a monk of Benevantum were lodged in the hostel of the glorious Emperor Charles, founded for all the pilgrims who speak the Roman tongue, and after making the ordinary visits of devotion, and giving us their account of the Easter miracle of the Holy Fire at the Church of the Sepulchre, they took ship for Italy and landed at Rome after sixty days of misery at sea. Bernard's account closes with the Roman churches the Lateran, where the keys of the whole city are given every night into the hands of the Apostolic Pope, and Street Peter's on the west side of Rome, that for size has no rival in the world, at the same time, or a little earlier than the Breton traveler C808-850. Another Latin had written a short tract on the houses of God in Jerusalem, which, with Bernard's notebook, is our last geographical record before the age of the Northmen. A new time was coming a time not of timid creeping pilgrims only, but of sea kings and seamen, who made the ocean their home, and, for the north of Europe at least, broke the tradition of land journeys and coasting voyages.
but the early pilgrims after all had their place. It is of no use insisting that the mental outlook of these men is infantile, that is best proved by their own words, their own scale of things, but it is necessary to insist that in these travelers we have comparatively enlarged experience and knowledge, and as comparison is the only test of any age, or of any man therein, the very blunders and limitations of the past, as we see them to be, had a constant, as well as an historical, value to us, that island we are always being reminded, first, how we have come to the present mastery over nature, over ourselves, over all being, and, secondly, how imperfect, how futile, our work is still, and seems always doomed to be, if judged from a really final standpoint, or rather from our own dreams of the ultimately possible, so if in the case of our medieval travelers their interests are the very reverse of ours, if they take delight in brooding over thoughts which to us do not seem worthy thinking, if their minds seem to rest as much on fable implicitly accepted as on the little amount of experienced fact necessary for a working life, it will not be for us to judge, or to pity, or to despise the men who were making our world for us, and through whose work we live, especially we cannot afford to forget this as we reach the lowest point of the fortunes, the mental and material work and position and outlook, of Europe and Christendom. A half-barbarized world had entered upon the inheritance of a splendid past, but it took centuries before that inheritance was realized by the so-altered present. In this time of change we had men writing in the language of Caesar and Augustine, of Alexander and Plato and Aristotle, who had been themselves, or whose fathers had been, pirates, brigands, nomads, wolves of the land or of the sea, to Greeks or Romans of the south, who had been even to the Romanese provincials of the north, as in Britain. Mere dogs, whelps from the kennel of barbarism, the destroyers of the order of the world, the boundless credulity and servile terror, the superstition and feudal tyranny of the earlier Middle Ages, mark the first stage of the reconstruction of society, when savage strong men who had conquered were set down beside the overworked and outworn masters of the Western world, to learn of them, and to make of them a more enduring race. Chapter II. Vikings O.R.N.O.R.D.H.M.E.N. Circa 787-1066. The discoveries and conquests and colonies of the Norse Vikings, from the White Sea to North America, are the first glimpses of light on the sea of darkness round the little island of the known world that made up Christendom, and from the needs of the time these were the natural, the only natural beginnings of European expansion. From the rise of Islam, Saracens controlled the great trade routes of the South and East. It was only on the west and north that the coast was clear of all but natural dangers. In the Moslem Caliphate men were now busy in following up the old lines of trade, the immemorial traditions of the east, or as in southern Africa, extending the sphere of commercial activity and so of civilization, men of science were commenting on the ancient texts of Greeks and Latins, or adapting them to enlarged knowledge. But in Christendom, in the atrophy both of mental and physical activity, broken for short periods and in certain lands by the revivals of Charles the Great, of the Isaurian emperors, of Otto I of Alfred and his house, the practical energy of heathen enemies, for the Northmen were not seriously touched by Christianity till about the end of the first millennium, was the first sign of lasting resurrection, after the material came the spiritual revival, the whole life of the Middle Ages awoke on the conversion of the northern nations and of Hungary, but in the abundant and brilliant energy of the 11th the 12th, the 13th centuries, we must recognize the offspring of the irrepressible Norsemen as well as of the Irish and Frank and English missionaries, who in the dark ages of Christendom were working out the empire of innocent I.I.I., 
in exploration, especially, it was true that theory followed achievement, Flavio Georgia, of Amalfi, did not apply the magnet to navigation did not give sailors the use of the magnet till navigation itself had begun to venture into the unknown Atlantic. The history of geographical advance in the earlier Middle Ages is thus rather a chronicle of adventure than of science, but the Norse discoveries are not only the first, they are the leading achievements of Western travel and enterprise in the true unknown. Between the time of Constantine and the Crusades, the central fact of European expansion in the Dark Ages from the 7th to the 11th century is the advance of the Vikings to the Arctic continent and to America about the year 1000. All that precedes this on the same line is doubtful and unimportant. For, of the other voyages to the West in the 6th, the 8th, the 10th centuries, which, on Columbus' success, turned into prior claims to the finding of the New World, there is not one that deserves notice. St. Brandon in 565, the seven Spanish bishops in 734, the Basques in 990 may or may not have sighted their islands of Antilia, of Atlantis, of the seven cities, they cannot be verified or valued, any more than the journeys of the enchanted horse or the third calendar, we only know for certain a few unimportant, half-accidental facts, such as the visits of Irish hermits to Iceland and the pharaohs during the 8th century and the traces of their cells and chapels and bells and ruins and crosses found by the Northmen in the 9th. It was in 787 that the Vikings first landed in England, by the opening of the next century they were threatening the whole coastline of Christendom. From Galicia to the Elbe, in 874 they began to colonize Iceland, in 877 they sighted Greenland, in 922 Rolf the Ganger won his Normandy, from Charles the Simple, by the Treaty of Clare sur Ecte. As early as 840 was founded the first Norse or Ostman kingdom in Ireland, and in 878 the Norse earldom of the Orkneys, while about the same time the first Vikings seem to have reached the White Sea and the extreme north of Europe. This advance is almost as rapid as that of the early Saracens, within a hundred years from the first disturbance of Danes and Northmen by the growing, all-including power of the new national kingdoms, within three generations from Halfdan the Black, first the flying rebels and then the royalists in pursuit of them, had reached the farthest western and northern limits of the known world, from Finisterre in Spotland to Cape Farewell in Greenland, from the North Cape in Finland to the Northwest Capes of Ireland, from Novgorod or, oh, 